the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. These days, if you think about the key elements in making a church successful, take several things. For the pastor, it calls on administrative skills, fundraising abilities, church growth skills as well. Yet rarely do we find one individual that excels in all three. It's, it's quite seldom. And as a result, a lot of churches perhaps struggle. If we take a look at the landscape today, we know that um, more often than not, churches are, are struggling to try to kind of find that, that sensitive balance to be successful at what they do. These days, there are plenty of TV programs that talk about makeovers, everything from new hair, clothing, and makeup for a whole new you, to the redesign of a restaurant or a new menu back at the kitchen. But what about a redesign for a church? What about a makeover for a church? Well, there's a brand new program that will give your church a potential faith lift. It debuts this coming Monday, November the 11th at 10 p.m. Pacific on Nat Geo. And joining us right now on this edition of Lifeline, we're pleased to have the church hoppers join us today, Rev, Glad, and Doc. And guys, great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Craig. Thank you. Let's talk a bit about the concept behind all of this. As I mentioned, a lot of folks that have any experience in, in church growth or day-to-day operation of a church recognize it takes an awful lot of skills. There's kind of the, the front end of things, the outreach, the evangelism, the church growth side. Then there's the operational side of things, the, the business end, the raising the money, the spending the money to keep every aspect of the church alive, healthy, and moving forward. You really have to have skills at an awful lot of areas, but I suspect it's few and far between to find a church congregation that has leadership that excels in all these areas. Well, you're exactly right, Craig, and it's hard to find a business that would excel in all three of those areas as well. I can tell you from experience. So that's why the three of us decided as as leaders individually to join forces and create a consulting company called the Church Hoppers that ultimately has the trio of what we feel like ministry is missing in consulting and in coaching. Most ministers that have been through seminary and are leading a church, pastoring a church, the last thing they need is someone telling them how to preach their sermon or how to uh, more effectively reach the congregation through the Spirit. They they have avenues having gone through years of education and, and mentorship for those elements. But what most church leaders lack is, is the very thing that you explained. They lack strategic expertise in business, the overall business plan of the church, um, and it's not about—it's not just about making money. Business is not about making money. It's about be, being effective at whatever you're passionate about. And they certainly lack the human resource element in a lot of times, a lot of cases, especially on the inside. You know, it's easy to do ministry to folks, but sometimes it's hard to be ministered to, especially when you're in church leadership. And we say that from experience. And then. You know, how, how are they promoting their ministry to their target audience, uh, which target audience obviously would be a business term, so let's say to their community, the people that they're trying to reach. So those three areas are where myself, Rev Kev, my partner Doc, 
and my partner, Gladimir, we go into these ministries and we try to help improve them in those areas. And if nothing else, we're providing them with an outside perspective of those areas. So you guys are bringing unique sets of uh, skills to the table that cover really every aspect of, of church operation, from both kind of the, the back end, so to speak, and to that I refer the operational side, the business side, to the front end, how you're reaching the community, how you're grabbing them, and then ultimately how you're keeping them. That's correct. Um, this is Glad. Um, we we, we kind of take a, a comprehensive look at everything. There's a lot of research that we put into um, a, a consulting opportunity before we before we ever even walk in and do our our hop, as we call it. We we do a lot of research. We've been contacted by these ministries. We start to entrench ourselves in the in the culture and their community, understanding who they are as a congregation, the people that. Um, you know, that they're trying to attract. And it, it is true in, in, in church culture, whether or not we want to uh, embrace it or not, we, we surround ourselves with individuals that are, are like us. And that's why there are so many uh, churches out there across the denominational lines, because no church is perfect for everybody. So we, we help them find their unique um, DNA. And, and my particular area is kind of the parking lot to pulpit. I, I like to start evaluating everything that we do from the moment that I lay eyes on the facility. And I think a lot of times folks don't really pay a great deal of attention to that because they feel like because of, you know, the fact that the spirit is being, you know, spoke about and, and ushered in to these ministries that sometimes the things that people see and experience kind of get left, you know, to the back burner. So, so, so it's thought, kind of when you guys then uh, swoop in on a community, you kind of go in the front door kind of like a, like a customer, so to speak, the consumer side of things. And I, and I, for the benefit of the audience, I don't wish to seem to be um, demeaning the spiritual side of, of what we do in church ministry by, by no means. But let's face it, if you're new to a town and you're driving down the street and you see on a corner an old, tired, dilapidated building, you're not even quite sure that it's to church, then you, you kind of discover there's a reader board over covered with, with ivy and that looks like the church hasn't been painted in 30 years, there, it's going to be less attractive for you to want to go and sample that church Sunday morning with your family than a church maybe a couple of blocks down with nicely mowed lawns. They've kept up the manicuring of all of the shrubbery. The church is freshly painted. It looks inviting. So I guess we have to look at some of this as kind of like a, like a consumer, don't we? Oh, Craig, dude, uh, you, you're a church hopper. Um, we, we indoctrinate you as an honorary church hopper already. <laughs> so absolutely. I mean, you've got it. Um, you know, you think about the retail environment, the consumer culture that we live in, and how things rapidly change around us. I mean, go into any retail environment, and I promise you, one week to the next, you're not going to see the exact same things at the front door. Uh, and, and in almost all of them, you're going to see a well-manicured, well-maintained facade that anybody would be proud to shop at that place. So, I mean, you couldn't be more right on, on that particular element. It's perfect. We live in a consumer culture, and we've got to think like that. We've got to, we've got to preserve the integrity of the things that we value and believe in, and we've got to do it in a way that is attractive to something you said there a minute ago that was perfect, attractive to your potential customer. And that is your community, the people that you're trying to connect with. They are your church's customer, and that is very important. Doc, when you guys roll into a church um, and you sit down after you've had a uh, had chance to do your investigation and now uh, come up with an action plan, are a lot of pastors 
shocked at much of what you share? And I ask that question because I think of the way I sing in the shower. I am, I could be a rival of Pavarotti. I'm so good. And yet, and yet I realize if I, if I try to carry a tune down the hallway here at the radio station, most people dive for cover and I hear office doors slamming all about me. It, it never quite sounds to us the way it sounds to others. So we're inclined to think we preach the best sermons. We've got the greatest choir. We have the, the best oratory skills from the pulpit side looking out toward the congregation. Are they shocked to find out that the congregation doesn't always agree? Well, Craig, uh, my perspective on this is a lot like if you came to my house, and my wife and I had a had a basket of clothes that was there, and that, those basket of clothes been there for about three or four weeks, five weeks, and you walked into my house, you looked and you said, "Why is that basket of clothes sitting in the floor?" I've been there so long that I don't even see that basket mm. of clothes, and that's the same thing that's going on in church today. We in church have gotten so used to doing the same thing over and over and over again that we do not even realize what we're doing. And what happens is, is when we as church hoppers come in and we, we deal with this world that they're, they're in, it is a shock to them because many times the ministers and the, and the staff, they don't realize exactly what's going on. Rev Kev is, is the confronter of our group. He confronts a lot. Uh, myself, I'm the convincer. I'm convincing people that, that they can be who they are and the uniqueness. And then Gladimir, he's the comforter. He comforts those ministers in many cases. So when we come in as a whole, we realize our position, but we also realize that many times when we bring the truth out to them, that sometimes it's embraced, sometimes it takes a little while to get there, but in the end, the specialness is they get to be who they are, and they will embrace that at the end. Change, of course, can be challenging for any of us to accept and to embrace, but change is what the church hoppers are bringing to churches all across America. The new series, as we mentioned, will premiere this coming Monday. That'll be at 10 p.m. Pacific on the National Geographic Channel, and it's an opportunity to learn how to rethink the way we do church. It's not suggesting that it's necessarily broken, but some churches can use a facelift in some areas or another to maximize the impact of their ministry and make sure that they're doing everything that they can to serve the community in which they reside. Again, the program premieres this coming Monday at 10 p.m. Pacific on Nat Geo. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation with the Church Hoppers as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Over the course of conversation with a colleague of mine, he was talking about a series of photographs, a collage really, floating about on Facebook. One side to the left depicts photographs of the likes of Albert Einstein, Carl Sandburg, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Arturo Toscanini, a good Irish name for you. And on the left, on the left, a photograph of Snooky from Jersey Shore. By the way, if you don't know who that is, congratulate yourself. The caption below this collage of photograph reads, If you know the person on the right, but none on the left, you might be what's wrong with America. And that, I think, is an ideal introduction to my next guest on the program tonight. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Intellectual Morons and A Conservative History of the American Left. 
His latest book is entitled Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. We're joined tonight by Daniel Flynn. Uh, Daniel, as we mentioned, in addition to being a best-selling author, is also a columnist for humanevents.com and a blogger at flynnfiles.com. And Daniel, thanks so much for being with us on the program tonight. Thank you for having me. I thought uh, that the story of that collage of photographs, I don't know what, but maybe you have seen them, in, in many ways kind of defines exactly what has happened in this slow uh, but steady slide into the abyss in America today, uh, where even as we've tried to search for some sort of a connection between uh, the intellectuals and, and the so-called inspiration for the Occupy Wall Street movement, there is scant little evidence of same. Yeah, I haven't seen those pictures, but you, you did what a good radio host will do, which is to create a visual with, with your words. <laughs> so I, I feel like I've, I've seen those pictures, and I, I've certainly seen Snooky and, and those other characters as well. But that's, that's kind of where we're at um, as, as a culture, where you know, it, it used to be the case um, around the mid-century mark that the United States of America, you know, the people of the United States of America were the best, you know, the most well-educated people in the history of the world. You had University of the Air style radio programs, the Book of the Month Club, great books, discussion groups, meeting in YMCA's and union halls around the country. Um, you don't see that very much today, and I think part of the reason is that the everyman is, you know, rather than, than reaching for something higher, they're kind of dragging their arms ever lower, you know, for, for Snooky and the situation and all that kind of thing. Um, but on the other side of the coin, uh, you don't have intellectuals as eager to engage the everyman. Um, and we, we once had intellectuals, you know, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about, who spoke not just to other eggheads, but were, were very um, enthusiastic about opening up a conversation to all comers. And I think the, the, the issue we have today, sure, part of it's, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack not being, being um, as, as intellectually curious as he once was, but the other part of it is that you have... Um, uh, you know, academics who are, who are operating in, in an intellectual ghetto. And let's face it, there needs to be some source of stimulation uh, to encourage that intellectual curiosity. And I think, as you aptly point out, uh, throughout your new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, I mean, part of this we can lay uh, squarely at the feet of, you know, reality shows, which are anything but, uh, you know, video games is entertainment. Uh, Facebook is our singular means by which we, we stay socially connected. I imagine what a shock it would be for our great-great-grandparents who communicated either in person uh, faccia a faccia, as we would say in Italian, or by the old-fashioned method of, of handwriting letters, and now all of a sudden it's been reduced down to anything that you can get in 140 characters uh, on on Twitter, and this all of a sudden has now been sub the substitute uh, for social interaction. I mean, I, I, th I think we can point at a number of levels of the steady decline, if not outright decay, uh, of not only our, our social interaction skills, but our, our intellectual skills as well. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, I, I was out in your neck of the woods researching this book. I knew something that you said really brought to mind um, some of my research in the archives, looking at people like Eric Hoffer at the Hoover Institution or Mil Milton Friedman and Hoffer having some papers also at the San Francisco Public Library. And when you, when you research archives of people who lived, you know, 50, 100 years ago, you, you grasp how um, even just normal people, how, how good they were at writing. And they wrote letters. They wrote long letters to people. And I, I wonder what's going to happen 50 or 100 years from now uh, when people look at our writing. I don't know if they're going to be saving Twitter tweets or <laughs> saving text messages. 
but I shudder to think at, at uh, how they will um, look at us uh, from the way we write, because we're not, we're not really impressing people with that. I well, think. and you point out in the book, and I, I saw this, and, and there was a resounding knee-slapping uh, amen, brother, when I, when I read this line inside of the book, uh, this notion that, you know, for the longest time we used to decry... Uh, the kind of trash that showed up at the grocery store uh, checkout line, you know, which was everything from, uh, you know, the world, world's weird news to uh, the National Enquirer, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden today, it is hard to differentiate between uh, what you see at the grocery checkout stand and what you see at the newsstand these days. And, and, and even, you know, even with the Internet and the ability of it to, to bring to us such a vast knowledge of the, the collected, uh, you know, awareness and understanding of the world uh, right there at the fingertips of the keyboard, uh, it seems as if even so-called legitimate news sites uh, can't deal somehow with the abstraction to the outright uh, obsession of things like, you know, focusing on no talent, no buddies like a Kim Kardashian. Uh, all of this, sure. I think, just, you know, indicative, as you pointed out, you know, when the newsstand is no different than the checkout line at the grocery store, um, you know, it, it might be subtle, but I think it's a very profound subtly, uh, subtlety as to what it says about who we have become as a nation. Yeah, I mean, the book is really about a time when smart looked for you and i think what you have today is you know you you can still look for, you can still find smart if you look hard enough but it's smart's not really looking for you in other words there's sort of an invasive stupidity there is you know i i, I travel a lot in in writing books and i get into the back of a cab and all of a sudden i don't know when this started but there's a tv that i can't turn off in the back of the cab you sit in an airport waiting room there's no escape from uh, you know, the, the CNN International blaring in the, in the background. You can't find a quiet corner to read. Even when you get on the subway, it used to be, if you, you'd notice, you know, when you ride the subway, uh, people would be reading. They'd be reading newspapers and magazines and books. And now, I mean, there's still some people who are reading, but most of the time people are texting, they're playing a video game, <laughs> they're doing something with an electronic gadget. And I can't help but think from observing all this, how we, sp- you know, how we spend our leisure time it's largely become a waste of time. And, you know, far be it for me to lecture someone, hey, you have to use your time in, in the way that I want you to use your time. I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I, I can't help but thinking that the way we use our leisure time is really affecting us in a negative way as, as a country. You're right. And as you point out, you know, for, for, for the working man, the blue-collar guy that worked in industry uh, back in the 1930s and 40s, say, or who had migrated to states like California during the Dust Bowl uh, period in Oklahoma, um, you know, by by no stretch of the imagination where these edu- educated people are necessarily highbrow or intellectuals. And yet, as you say, there was enough in popular, popular culture and enough influence by the so-called intellectuals that went looking for the common man or, or the blue-collar guy to help try and elevate him. I mean, my goodness, it, it's not that many years ago that things like, you know, Campbell's Playhouse would present uh, Shakespearean plays in their entirety uh, over the course of several evenings or the Firestein Theater with, with great orchestras and great opera. And this would be prime-time television, 8 o'clock at night on a Wednesday evening and the entire family sat down and watched this and learned and they got exposed to some culture to some culture and and they had a little bit of you know the, the intellectual exercise going on all of that has disappeared sure and you know i think about the, the first um blue collar intellectual that i write about a guy named will durant um and i you know one of the reasons why 
I think these blue-collar intellectuals had and you know, felt an obligation to, to engage the everyman is because they came from um, you know, the, the mass of, of, uh, of Americans that were not at the top but were you know, somewhere in the scrum there. And Will Durant, I mean, this is an amazing Only in America story, his father was illiterate. I mean, Will Durant wrote the best-selling philosophy book in the 20th century, The Story of Philosophy, uh, outsold Charles Lindbergh's autobiography after he, he flew over the Atlantic. I mean, that's how much people were eager to read his book. Um, Will Durant, along with Ariel Durant, his wife, wrote some of, you know, books that were perennially on the best-seller list, the hist- you know, based- a history of the world, which he called The Story of Civilization, 11-volume set uh, over the course of 45 years from the 1920s all the way up through the 1970s. His dad couldn't speak a lick of English. He had 10 kids, and he worked in a factory. And when we talk about the American dream, we're so transfixed on the monetary angle. And certainly there are these rags-to-riches Horatio Alger stories. But the striver culture that I'm talking about in blue-collar intellectuals also had to do with uh, an educational betterment. And I think the story of a guy like Will Durant uh, exemplifies that. And I think the fact that we don't see that as much anymore. Well, and we've, um, we've, pointed, we've, we've dumbed down democracy in, in, in every sense of the word. And unfortunately, uh, education, whether we're talking about uh, Main Street, K through 12, uh, on up to even the higher levels of education, has seen this huge paradigm shift from teaching people how to think, presenting the facts, and then allowing them to draw their own conclusions to the easy way out, simply what to think, where we can regurgitate a couple of details here and there that that tends to sort of just make up a a particular political opinion uh, or political thrust and end of story. And and this, I think, is demonstrating, as uh, Daniel Flynn points out in his book, the danger of what's happening. Uh, when we're no longer enlightened, when we're no longer capable of thinking for ourselves. And, you know, we've had some examples in not too far distant history uh, of what happens when uh, mankind stops thinking for itself and relies on someone else or, or some other body to think for it and the dangers that all of that brings about. We're talking today about his new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America uh, those days are not that far ago, and I think things can be done to, to revive those days and, and to bring it back. Uh, but it's going to take an awful lot of work on all of our behalfs. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. Um, and as we do so, the phone lines are open for thoughts and comments. Toll free at 888 forkfax In particular, are there some intellectual types out there that would agree? My goodness, what's happened? That we, We've dumbed down society, and we've extracted out of popular culture anything that gives a sense of uh, of refinement to it, uh, of culture or class to it, where pop culture today, if you spend any time on the internet or watching MTV or anything that masquerades as, as entertainment on many cable television stations today, uh, it's become an absolute wasteland. It was, was not always like this. So if we keep that in mind, then the question is, what do we do to revive it so we can get America back on track? Big equation here at a lot of levels, to be sure. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
We're talking with author Daniel Flynn, a look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. We're talking about uh, what has become this slow slide down into the abyss. And as you point out in the book, Daniel, as much as we'd like to um, say, gee, what's wrong with America? Where did we go wrong? There's a degree to which the intellectuals have ultimately failed the culture. They no longer engage the culture the way we once did. Um, You mentioned my friend Milton Freeman, who had been a guest on this program many, many times uh, before his passing, and how much he liked to engage the common man. At what point do you think, where where do we see the distinction when that ceased to be the case? I, I think with a guy like Friedman, he has a very interesting career because the first half of it is essentially engaging other intellectuals. And then at a certain point, he, he goes as far as he's going to go within academia, and he decides to write Capitalism and Freedom, which is for a, a lay audience and not for an academic audience. He decides to write this Newsweek column, which he writes for 18 years uh, every three weeks, the Free to Choose documentary. He was very skeptical of that because he thought anyone who could be convinced by a uh, half-an-hour broadcast on television would just be reconverted to the opposite position the next time uh, another half-hour program came about, you know, advocating the opposite position. So he, he was skeptical of some of these things, but he thought that it was his obligation as an economist to engage the, the educated um, layperson. I think, uh, and, and Friedman was obviously doing this in, into, the, into the 1990s and, and really up until his death just a few years ago. There are still people that you see doing this. I mean, that one, one guy who, you know, I don't necessarily agree with, with what he does, but I think Ken Burns is someone who you might call a blue-collar intellectual. I mean, he, he's someone who people think he's an historian. He's not. He's some guy with a history degree, just like me. You know, he's a history degree from a, from a college, and he decided to make documentaries. And, boy, that's a tough thing to make history come alive, to, to, to make the dead walk again, essentially. And that's, that's what he does with some of his documentaries. And I... I really admire that. Um, I, I may not admire some of his views, but I admire people who at least make the effort to um, to reach the common man. And I don't think that we see that too much um, with academia, with people who are sort of off in their insular world talking amongst themselves. I think they would be better served if they talked to, um, you know, if they got out of their intellectual ghettos and talked to the everyman. And I think the everyman would be better served as well. They, it would be, you know, it would be a win-win for everyone. A big part of this is, is the kind of the isolation into the ivory tower, so to speak. But then to something else that I made reference uh, to Daniel before the break, and that is what I've identified as a major shift where at one time uh, the, the principal component um, in education was to teach students, whether we're talking about K-12 through or at the higher degree levels, how to think. Yes, certainly there were attempts at influencing. There was no doubt about that. I, I think that we can see, you know, a, a, an agenda of one sort or another woven through lots of periods of, of history, certainly in, in 20th and 21st century history, to be sure. But all of a sudden, we, we saw this major shift in education, particularly in the late 50s and early 1960s, where it was no longer about teaching the students what to think, giving them the tools so they could draw their own conclusions, but rather we kind of skipped over that process, and now we just gave them what to think. We went from how to think to what to think. Yeah, well, one of the, um, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about is Mortimer Adler, and he was really the evangelist behind the Great Books movement. And one of the reasons why um, Adler was so successful with, with the Great Books and selling them 
is because there was a void that the, the you know, Harvard and, and some of the other leading institutions really stopped teaching um, those cultural common denominators, those great books of the Western world. So this was that, like when they, they published, uh, in fact, I've got a whole set at home, like the Harvard Classics? Strangely enough, Charles Eliot, who was the guy behind the Harvard Classics, one of the reasons that was successful as well is because Eliot had basically created that void by getting rid of the classics and the curriculum at Harvard. So there's an irony there. And with, with, with a guy like uh, Adler, whose background is really amazing in the sense that he, he's probably the only Ivy League Ph.D. I know who had not gotten a high school diploma nor a college diploma before getting his Ph.D. But the amazing thing for me is not really his academic accomplishments, but his accomplishments as a salesman in the sense that you can, you can go door-to-door and sell someone a vacuum cleaner. You can go door-to-door and, and sell someone flatware. But the idea of going door-to-door and selling everyday Americans a million sets of the 54-volume great, uh, great books of the Western world that, to me, is absolutely amazing. And Mortimer Adler helped do that at mid-century in America. And his big point, here's his big point to get to your question. His big point was, you know, if you just have a monarchy, if you just have one king, um, you know, there's that phrase, the education fit for a king. And you, all you have to be concerned about is one guy's education, and your government's fine. But what happens when your king is essentially 311 million people? <laughs> you have to, you know, that, that, flaw, that idea, the education fit for a king. You've got to apply that to 311 million people. And if you don't concern yourself with everyone's education, you're going to have uh, a citizenry that's not only not fit to govern the country, but they're really not fit to govern their own souls. And that's the problem, as Adler saw it, and that's why he was such an enthusiast of, of Aristotle and Plato and Shakespeare and all of those great books that used to be the cultural common denominators and now often are left out of the curriculum entirely. Well, and let's face it, we, we can just simply sit down and look at the headline news today, and we see the results of this. You know, what happens? Well, you end up with a, a, a monetary, a moral, a social, and a spiritual deficit at every level. Uh, you know, in, in economic terms, that's what leads to a $16.4 trillion deficit that nobody can quite explain. Uh, in, in moral terms or spiritual terms, this is what leads to, to people acting out in unbelievable ways, kind of the personification of, of man's ultimate you know, cruelty to man, and, and, and no sense of guidelines or respect for others, for life, for any of it. So I, I think we're, also, we're seeing the product add, of it. Yeah, and, and can I add, in cultural terms... Um, you know, we just, um, we just went through 2011, and this is the first year in the history of Hollywood, just, just to throw something out there that I think every listener can relate to, the first time in the history of Hollywood that the top ten best-selling movies at the box office in a year were all either remakes, sequels, or based on old comic book characters mm. from 50 or 60 years ago. In other words, there's a complete dearth of originality in the entertainment that we have. In the sense that, that we're, you know, we're watching The Fast and the Furious Part 5 and you know, The Hangover Part 2, and that's what people are buying. Um, and it, to me, it just speaks to uh, the fact that as a culture, we're living off the fumes of an America from 50, 60 years ago. And you could probably say the same thing economically and, 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 and translate that into other areas beyond the culture as well. I, I think that, you know, as much as uh, we probably don't want to use uh, what's selling at the box office as a um, measuring stick, as a yardstick 
of what's going on in, in uh, popular culture and society today. I think it's oftentimes a very accurate one, and you're right. I mean, there seems to be this this major creative deficit going on, and, and where what things that too seem to strike a chord are, are rehashing of films that sometimes have their genesis going back 20, 30, 40 years or more. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, I want to talk, too, about what seems to be the disappearance of of the warning system, the early warning system that America had in place. Now, to be sure, thank goodness there are people like Daniel Flynn and others that are trying to, to fill the gap. But whatever happened to the Aldous Huxleys of the world and the Ray Bradburys and the, the Orwells of the world who wrote books warning of what happens to a society when you forfeit your intellectual rights, your moral rights, your spiritual rights, your right of self-governance? We'll get back to more of our conversation. A look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. Back to our conversation with best-selling author Daniel Flynn as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, best-selling author Daniel Flynn, the book Blue Collar Intellectuals. By the way, you can get a copy of the book at uh, bookstores and, of course, information, too, on his daily blog at flynnfiles.com. Daniel, what of the notion that we've also tend to, to lost kind of the early warning system? You know, I, I grew up on the, the, the writings of the likes of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I mean, everybody remembers him for his work on Star Trek, and yet it, the, the prolific writing that he did, the warning uh, that's contained in Fahrenheit 451, George Orwell's 1984. I mean, so many aspects of any of these three books and others like them that, that have served as kind of the early warning sign. That It seems as if a lot of that has kind of disappeared today. We, we, we live all today in the moment, and we don't think much about tomorrow, do we? There's an interesting tidbit in my book relating to both 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. There was a, a, a prep school in my home state of Massachusetts. They charged $40,000 a year for students to attend. And a couple of years ago, they decided to get rid of all of their books in their library. <laughs> the headmaster said, people are acting like this is, you know, 1984. It's not. And I thought, you know, it, it's not just 1984. It's Fahrenheit 451. And instead of spending the money on books, they decided to spend um, $50,000 or more than $50,000 revamping the library, adding three flat-screen televisions to what once was a library and a cappuccino machine. <laughs> so that's the brave new world to sort of complete your trifecta there that, that we're entering into. I think of a guy like Bradbury, and uh, you know, when he was a kid, he, he had a lot going against him when he was growing up in L.A. He was, he was uh, extremely poor, so poor that... He had to sleep in the same bed with his brother up until the time he was an adult. It was a pull-out couch in their living room. And uh, he, the other thing he had going against him was he was like a nerd nerd. He used to corner Marlena Dietrich and Clark Gable and, and Judy Garland for autographs on his roller skates around uh, Hollywood. He was really a terror. The one thing he had going for him is that he was super smart, Ray Bradbury. And so when it came time to go to college, he, he couldn't go. He, in the Depression, you know, he didn't, have, they didn't have any money. And so what he did instead was... He went to the public library for three days a week, and he read, and he read, and he read. And he did this for four years, three days a week, in, in lieu of going to college. And I, I think that a guy like Bradbury, he had it right. In other words, uh, today, these days, 
people go to college and all they care about is that piece of paper at the end of four years. They care less about the, the, the education that comes in between. Bradbury, all he cared about was the education. He could have cared less about that piece of paper. And I think his life gives us a little bit of a lesson to see how our priorities are a little bit screwed up today, where people go to college for the credentialism, for, for job training, but they don't go for the learning. Well, and they, I, I they go we, and they go and they go in order to get the paper, to get the degree, to get earn a higher salary so they can keep up with the Joneses. And yet there's very little, and there are certainly always exceptions to this rule, but there there is not as much emphasis by any means as there used to be about getting your degree and then going out and doing something to change the world. That, that's right. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to make this into a, a big tirade against higher education, but there are, uh, you know, the, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about, I mean, there's a guy like uh, Milton Friedman, who obviously had a huge benefit from being at the University of Chicago, their economics department, but there's someone like Eric Hoffer, who in San Francisco was by day loading, uh, you know, uh, cargo off the docks of ships uh, in, in San Francisco. He, he was a longshoreman, longshoreman, wasn't he? Was that? Wasn't he a longshoreman? He, he was a longshoreman, That's and the, the point here is that he never went to school for a day in his life, and yet, you know, by day he's doing this longshoreman work, and by night in his off hours, he's writing what became the true believer, which really became one of the best books in the 20th century to understand in the 20th century, and, um, you know, because of the fact that there was this American general in stationed France who read his book in 1951 and then came back to the United States and became president, he was elected president the next year, we're talking about Dwight Eisenhower, who loved Hoffer's book, and because everyone wants to read what, what the president's reading, Hoffer became a big celebrity, and all of a sudden the intellectual that all of America wants to consult is a guy who's never been to school a day in his life. Why do you think, then, we've seen this shift at the intellectual level where the desire to foster an educated and cultured society just seems to have fallen by the wayside. Boy, when you when you uh, hear intellectuals talk, they speak in a jargon that I don't even think they understand. Uh, they write books that nobody reads. They speak at conferences that nobody attends. It's, it's almost as if they're trying to convey their apartness from the rest of the society. They're not really trying to convey any substantive idea, per se, but they're trying to convey how they're in this educated clique how they're, you know, they're kind of above everyone else. And to me, I mean, that may be cathartic, it may make them feel good, but I don't know what it, what it does, you know, it does, certainly doesn't do anything for society. And, you know, that's part of the reason I wrote this book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, because here are intellectuals who engaged the public and who spoke to the public and, you know, who may have had their own intellectual work with, you know, with, with involving strictly other intellectuals, but who at least made an effort to uplift um, the masses from which they sprang. And I think nowadays, because a lot of the people who are in academia um, certainly don't come from that, uh, the, the kind of uh, place that Ray Bradbury or an Eric Hoffer came from, they have absolutely no interest of, uh, of, of uh, taking that on. So and rather than having kind of come up through the system, so to speak, uh, they, they began as a member of the elite. That's all that they've known. And so they, they kind of hover in that rarefied air with no interest whatsoever of their feet ever touching ground. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And, I, you know, look, I'm married to an academic, so I don't want to bash them too much or I'll get kicked out of my house. You'll be sleeping with the dog tonight otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, there was something great going on in America for much of the last century um, where you had these guys like Will and Ariel Durant and Ray Bradbury and, and, and Milton Friedman and, and, uh, and, and, you know, all the people that I write about 
we're making an effort to engage the everyman. And, of course, that's kind of what talk radio does. But you don't see that as much uh, from, from academics or scholars or intellectuals anymore. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, is hoping to jumpstart that again. How do we do that, then? A closing thought from me, if we can, Daniel, in a minute or so that we have left. How do we get it jumpstarted once again? Well, I think in everyone in their own life, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the type of book that, that people are going to read and say, oh, well, let's pass this piece of legislation, or aha, you know, this is what we do to make everything right. Um, it's not one of those books, but what it is is I think anyone who reads it can make those changes in their own lives. They can shut off the television for a day or shut off the Internet for the day and pick up a book. You mentioned jokingly in, the, in, in coming into the segment, you know, if book, you know, bookstores exist. I mean, I used to say you could buy it at Barnes & Noble and Borders, but there's no more Borders. And it doesn't seem to me too many used bookstores anymore. And I think if just people um, look at the common denominator, how um, people have lifted themselves up intellectually over the course of the last 400 years or so, the, the common denominator there is the book. And I think people really got to get back into to reading and not so much being into in front of screens, whether it's your cell phone or your computer or your television. Well, and moreover, I think it's important to underscore the fact, Daniel, that this is not just for the matter of, of you know, lifting the common denominator and, 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 and uh, you know, sparing the culture from further demise and, and returning once again um, a, a sense of, of poise and culture and class to a pop culture. Uh, at certain levels, this also gets to the heart of the of the very protection of otherwise the ultimate demise, I think, of our society and our nation. Because if we don't have in stock and trade, at the very least, or at least our, our, our intellectual capabilities, uh, there's not much that we have left. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I think, why Adler was doing the great books of the Western world, because society was being torn asunder, because we no longer had these cultural common denominators. And he said, look, these are the great books that have united us as a culture, Let's get back into them. Even if, and it, 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 you know, when he was on the cover of Time magazine, the subheadline said, should professors commit suicide? And that was in jest, of course, but there was a grain of truth to it in the sense that he was offering education without the middleman, knocking the middleman out and basically saying education is a lifetime responsibility. It's not something you do exclusively in schools. It's something you do over the course of your life. And I think if people look at it from that perspective, um, they may be a little bit more healthy. One final question i got to squeeze in here. You talk in the book about apostate historians. Elaborate on that for a moment, would you, Daniel? Yeah, sure. Will and Ariel Durant. I mean, Will Durant, to me, he was the apostate historian. Everything he did, when he, when he, got, when he was in the seminary, and then he decided one day he was an atheist, he got not only got kicked out of the seminary, not only to leave the seminary, but he got excommunicated from the Catholic Church. When he, when he became an anarchist, um, he, he was an anarchist teacher. He fell in love with one of his students who was 15 years old, and they got. She was, he was 27. He got. He got married at the at the city hall. She went to the marriage ceremony with her roller skates. He was always doing things against the grain. When he was an anarchist, or later a socialist, went to the Soviet Union. Everyone expected him to come back with all these tales of heaven on earth, but instead he said, "This place is a gigantic prison." <laughs> and so everything that he did in life, he always was was. Um, doing the opposite of what was expected of him. And, of course, his marriage ends up by winning jointly a Pulitzer Prize with his wife. They get, they're married for 68 years. You wouldn't expect that out of someone, a teacher, who marries a student. Amazing. Daniel, we sure appreciate the time and the insights. Great book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America, available on the web through Amazon.com, bookstores, if you can find them, and, again, Daniel's blog at FlynnFiles.com. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.